Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Matt Bishop, who is a producer, recording engineer, mixing engineer, who has worked with artists such as Taylor Swift, The Killers, U2, Two Door Cinema Club, and a whole bunch more. And in today's episode, we have a really fun chat talking about the idea of perfection and when you need to pursue perfection versus when you need to embrace imperfections. And how this can impact your work, whether it has to do with the recording stage or the editing stage or the mixing stage, it's important to be able to have a clear idea of when things just sound good and when they're good enough versus falling into this continuous cycle of you know, being in this perfectionist trap where you're just nonstop searching for problems and creating problems that aren't really problems and never ultimately finishing your work. I know a lot of people that suffer from perfectionism like that, and they just never get stuff done. So in this interview, Matt dives into a little bit about his process for dealing with that and ultimately how to know when things sound good. We also get into a really interesting chat about working with some of the bigger artists that he's worked with. One record that he worked on was Taylor Swift's Taylor's version of her Red album. And the whole process of re-recording her songs from scratch again was something that I've been very fascinated with because I know it's something a lot of you guys would do where you listen to music that you love and you're trying to chase sounds. So to actually have to recreate an album and make it sound as close as possible to the original, I think is such a cool challenge. So I wanted to get Matt's perspective on what went into that record and how he went about that process so that you can learn from that as well. And so that if you're chasing certain tones, you can also learn a little bit from that process too. So we talk about working with Taylor Swift, we talk about working with Snow Patrol, working with U2, and a whole bunch more. This is a really fun episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Matt Bishop, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with you or uh, some of the projects you've worked with, that kind of stuff, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into music production? Sure, sure. Yeah. So I um, primarily these days am doing mixing and additional production on records, singles, that sort of thing. But initially got my start um, engineering um, with a guy producer by the name of Jackknife Lee. This was pro- this was over a decade ago um, in Los Angeles. Moved there fresh out of high school, and um, I, I went to a like a trade school for nine months, like a nine month accelerated audio school, the LA Recording School, which I think is called the LA Film School now. Um, but did that thing? Got an internship at a. It was kind of like a budget studio called Clear Lake Audio, which I believe is still around, but under different ownership. Um, the guy who owned it when I was there has passed but um so I was interning there for a long time not not even a long time maybe like three or four months and uh, we just got random random projects in and through that um interning and I was kind of just an extra set of hands um you know cleaning doing food runs um and kind of just being in the studio to see if they needed help mm-hmm and we had this band come in by the name of the Black Veil Brides. Um, I know those guys, yeah. Yeah, so I did, I don't even know what record it was, to be honest with you. So I was on, I was just sitting in on that process. And one of the engineers, his name is Josh Newell, um, who's still around and he's still doing cool stuff. Mostly like metal, um, that kind of vibe stuff. But um, he was a, a staff engineer at NRG, which is a really kind of big rock studio down the street, and knew Jackknife Lee because um, I think he was doing a, a Weezer record there. And um, he heard that he needed an assistant. And through that, and kind of being the only intern at Clear Lake, and they kind of like tagged me the super intern because I was just there. I was, I was probably <laughs> 18 or 19 at the time. 
and like literally didn't have anything better to do besides just be there whenever I could. Um, so I was just there all the time doing random stuff that I thought was worth doing. Um, cleaning, you know, there's some downtime. So I'd just be there like be bopping around. And, um, you know, I obviously made an impression and he, you know, passed my info on to his manager who had just like teamed up with him. Cause he, Jackknife had just moved to LA similar time I did. Long story short, um, I was hounding him and like, hey, like, let's link up, blah, blah, blah. We met. Um, I think the first time I met him, he was working on the latest single for Snow Patrol. And I was a big Snow Patrol fan at the time. So it was just like this. Because all the all the projects I had been involved in to that point, I guess apart from the Blackfield Brides, was just like, you know, just random stuff. Like, you know, and not to dig on any of the people doing these projects, but it, the passion on my end was not there. It was just like, oh, cool. This is like the recording process and I'm seeing it. And this is like real world stuff. Um, but being in, in the same room with like a real record that's like that I'm familiar with the artist and it just sounds amazing was just like mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that was a, my first experience with Jackknife and like, he was working with another engineer at the time, Sam Bell, who's I learned a lot of my um, skills from as well. But um, long story short, um, 10 years later, I was still working with him, making records, and um, just recently have um, kind of gone off and done my own thing. That's awesome. So did you know all along that you wanted to get in the studio or was like, like you're, you're a musician, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. So I kind of started... Um, this is interesting too. I, I, I kind of grew up, so I'm 32. Um, so a lot of like the music I was listening to in high school and was like emo bands and like, it was really like rock music, indie rock. So that was like my jam. And at the time there was this artist, his name was play radio play who was like, none of this music has aged very well. (laughs) So listening back, I was like, wow. Anyway, in my mind at the time, I was like, oh, this is cool. And he's doing all himself. So that's kind of when I got into, um, you know, I got my own Pro Tools rig and like started making my own music. And at that point, it was like, oh, you know what? And I did some shows and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really more into the, the creation side of it. And the, the um, I guess the back end as opposed to like the performance. Um, it just I just felt so much more at home mm-hmm. in the production side of things so through that i thought you know the the way into production is engineering and um which i guess it's it's different for everybody you know but for me i thought that was that that's the way in like engineering work with a producer and then at some point it'll naturally progress into production which (laughs) isn't necessarily the case but um but I think back in the day, that was kind of the traditional ladder that you would climb, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And and these days, I I don't think that is as much the case. But um, that's how that's that was my understanding of it. So I was like, this is this is what I'm going to do, and um, you know, it, it's worked out great for me, yeah. and I'm I'm very thankful, and um, you know, that I'm I have a career in music through this whole process, but um. That's how it worked out for me. And um, I guess mixing and additional production is kind of where I've settled into my like my niche, my comfortable zone. Um, I used to, you know, like I said, I used to work with a lot of artists in the studio, but um, it's hard work. It's really hard work, you know, for for indie bands that, you know, have some amount of money to pay you to record their record. It's it's never. I mean. This is not true. This isn't a true statement, but it's never enough money to justify the amount of work you're putting into something (laughs) unless it like blows up and then it all's worth it. And that's fine for projects you're passionate about. And that's what I was doing for a long time. But um, then it gets to a point where it's like, okay, I need to, I guess, think about this realistically and I can't spend this amount of time um, on a project if it's not um, fruitful. And, you know, cause I have a family, I've got all these things, real life starts happening and, um, you got to balance your priorities. And, um, I guess this niche is kind of where I've been able to balance my priority priorities and still, um, 
do what I'm passionate about and what I'm, I'm I, I love, I guess. For sure. It's interesting because you talked about how that first experience working with Snow Patrol was kind of like an eye-opening experience for you. What was it about that project that you felt made it feel different than than all those indie bands? Like, was it just that there was more time to work on things because they had bigger budgets or was there something else? I mean, for for me, I think ultimately it was the talent involved. It was like, you know, with with recording back at Clear Lake, it was just like, the musicianship was great and it was, you know, it sounded awesome. But then, and those were like very much like raw, live sounding records that I was doing there. And then when I was with um, that first day with Jackknife, it was like, it was probably mostly programmed um, and some vocals, but um, it just sounded so like fresh. And it sounded like nothing I had ever heard coming from um, like, you know, a DAW mm-hmm. and he was working in logic at the time. And I, and I w- hadn't worked in logic at that point. Um, of course I, I told him I did because I, I really wanted to get this job, <laughs> but, um, it was just this moment of like, Holy crap, this sounds like, um, the radio or this sounds like something I would hear, you know, just walking down the street coming out of a freaking, I don't know, store, you know? Um, it was just really exciting for me that moment to, to, to hear, I guess, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'll, I'd call it a pop song being made. Um, but, you know, Snow Patrol's kind of blurs the line between pop and a rock band. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and that, that makes sense. I mean, anytime you're dealing with serious musicians, you're going to, I mean, there's, it makes the whole experience so much easier. You, you know, you're not sitting around waiting for someone to like learn their parts and, you know, like dial, dial in tones without knowing like, you know, anything about their gear and all that kind of stuff. Like you, when you reach that level of a professional musician, it definitely makes that whole process so much easier because a lot of the work is just done but by the fact that you have people who know what they're doing, right? Certainly. <laughs> and that, and then that brings up a good point too, where it's like, you know, I was for, Early in my career, I always thought like there's there's something going on that is like secret that like the inside successful people have on raps that like this is how you make a hit song, which um, absolutely not true. It's just yeah. like, you know, <laughs> it's hard work and like long hours and just like a puzzle. It's all a puzzle of trying to like, um, you know, some people have formulas on how to how to make great songs, but I think that also kind of takes the the artist art, artistry away from it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, from my perspective, it was just like, no, these people are just like super passionate about this, know how to write great songs. And also like there was, I think my, you know, what I learned from working with Jackknife was like, there was no doing anything the same way. It was always like, this has to be, if it's going to be good and exciting and fresh, it has to feel like new and like, you know, every record we did was there was always it was always new stuff happening. And I think that's why, you know, he he's so successful in what he does, because he just knows how to, I guess, push the envelope. And like, I guess that's probably what my biggest takeaway working with him with, through all these years was just how to stay fresh and like just do what is exciting and new. And like you have to if it doesn't feel good when you're making it or mixing it, it's like it's not right. You know, and and certain and that happens. You know, sometimes you get gigs where it's like, you know, it's not what I am into. But at the end of the day, you got to make the the client happy as well. Of course, it's interesting. You you talked about this idea of like people having formulas for their songs, and you it also talked about working on music that was programmed and that kind of thing. And um, you know, a lot of people would argue that that kind of stuff can get stale pretty quickly sometimes because it's just so perfect and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I, when I was doing my research on you, I found a, uh, an article where you quoted, you were quoted as saying perfect is boring. And, uh, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and like, you know, what, what exactly do you mean by that? And like, you know, where does that line blur between something that's perfect versus imperfect enough? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is a fine line because I think there's a lot of, um, Instances where like yeah, a live drum kit is um you know, when you there's no drummer in the world that will play exactly on the grid. Um and many times in the studio you will edit a drum kit to be perfectly on the grid. 
But the fact that a drummer, a real human, is playing that kit and each snare hit and sound is a different, you know, I guess wavelength of sound happening. There's a randomness to that. And um, I think you cannot capture the same energy of a live kit with just samples. And, and samples certainly play a big part into getting a good drum sound. But I think the, the, the analog, um, just the essence of a real-life drummer playing something um, invites the, this like random behavior that you can't get from programming something. For sure. Um, there's a great example of this with the drummer from The Killers. He would like shout when he would play the drums. <laughs> and um in the on the record um wonderful wonderful i don't i can't think of the song at the moment but there are you can hear him like sh- like shouting random like shouting in the back <laughs> what is that that's the drummer just like shouting when he's playing and it and it and to me those are like the moments that are like wow that was like the special moment that you're not going to get programming it yeah you know you can overdub a shout but it's just like it's not organic and it's like, I don't know. There's something with, um, you know, live instruments and even like synths where it's like you're inviting like accidents to happen uh, for the better. You know, I think that those sort of like, you know, I'll use the word happy accidents are, um, you always want those moments to happen, but it's hard to, to have them. You can't just say, okay, let's just go get some happy accidents. It's like, you have to like invite, the opportunity of these happy accidents, but you're not just going to say, okay, let's just go get happy accidents. You know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. It's interesting because like a lot of people would see that kind of stuff and think of them like, you know, I guess as imperfections or, you know, it's like not hundred percent pristine quality or whatever. Um, but it's like, how do you decide then when an imperfection is worth keeping versus when it's actually working against the song, you know? Certainly. I think that's a good, I think there's a good distinguish to, to be able to distinguish that would be, you know, case by case. How does it make you feel when you hear that? If it's like distracting or off-putting, it's probably not an accident worth keeping. You know, if you hear that and you're like, whoa, what was that? Like that and that made you like feel something, whether it's excitement or like intrigue of the song, then I think you're you're probably onto something special. Mm-hmm. Do you find that um does this like pursuit of embracing imperfections is does that apply to your mixing philosophy as well like or are you the type of person who spends a lot of time on a mix because it has to sound perfect you know Uh, no that's a great question too i think with mixing there's certainly the the another fine line between like there is a like clinical part of mixing where it's like okay these frequencies just are not working together so you've got to like figure that part out and like get that part out of the way like, okay, now sonically, this is working. How can I now make this feel exciting? How can I elevate this song sonically to make this feel more exciting than it already is? You know, because if you've got a great song, the mix is is supposed to just elevate that. There's no way you're going to mix a bad song and then it's good. You know what I mean? And I, I kind of, I try to tell people that where it's like, if the song's not good, um, song's not good. The mix is the mix will help it sonically, but you're not going to make a good song or bad song good with a, a stellar mix. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So once you kind of get the sonic stuff out of the way and like sonically, it's it's clear, whatever. I think at that point, you know, you've just got to experiment. Whether it's effects, um, you know, sometimes I'll go out of the box and like you know weird pedals going on. Um, strange automation. I think those are the times when you're inviting accidents to happen and hope that something, you know, is elevating the song. For sure. Yeah, cuz I think that like one of the things I hear very often from a lot of home studio enthusiasts is that like they're working on their songs and they're trying to mix them, but then they're like on this like continuous pursuit of perfection with their songs and because of that they never finish their songs cuz they're just like almost searching for problems to solve, you know? And like, it just becomes this like spiral of like creating new problems for the sake of having problems to solve and and never finishing a mix. Right. Um, So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Like, and, and how you prevent yourself from reaching that point of overanalyzing a mix or a production. I think, you know, 
I think that is such a common um, issue. And it's also an issue that's like, it's, it's fun. You know, in my, in my experience, it's kind of like fun to keep working something. But there's also the reality of once this is done, if people don't like it, that's on me, you know? So it's like, if you are, if you don't put something out, it doesn't give people the opportunity to not like it. Anyway, I think from experience, um, you know when to call something done, you know, and it's it's not as easy as I think for artists doing their own records, like from recording, mixing all the way up to mastering. Sometimes I think it's exponentially harder for them to say, OK, this is done. You know, when you hand it off to somebody to mix, um, to master, you are, you know, trusting that person to, to tell you, like, this is this is done from my perspective. And, you know, they, if you're hiring somebody that's great at their job, then, um, that'll, that'll be apparent. But, um, I also, you know, I, I also tell people, it's like, you don't have to do everything. You know, you don't have to mix your record. And, um, there's people who are passionate about mixing, <laughs> you know, like myself, <laughs> it's like, you know, songwriting is such a, um, a monster of a, of a task. So to, to think that you could, you know, some people can, which is insane, but to, to try and do everything is, um, is really, really asking a lot of an artist to do. So I, I don't recommend it because it is also a lot of, you just got to dive into the weeds of stuff that a lot of stuff is not exciting to artists, like filtering out resonant frequencies. It's like, that's not super inspiring when you're trying to like write a beautiful song. Some people it is, but, um, Anyway, that's kind of my perspective. It's like, don't be afraid to hand your song off to somebody to like really say, okay, you know, I think this sounds done. And if it's a different version of what you thought, but it sounds super exciting, then, then maybe it is done. For sure. No, that's, I, I think that's a really good point because yeah, a lot of people do feel like they need to do it all as home studio people, you know, it's like, I've got the equipment, what's preventing me from doing it, right? And then it's right, like, well, because right. you just don't have that that objective opinion anymore you know yes you could do it but yeah you you're just making your own music worse by just over analyzing it right yeah yeah i think there there certainly becomes a point even in mixing you know when i in some of the records i've made it's like i've been involved with projects that um have taken years like plural years to complete and it gets to a certain point where it's like you know, you feel confident that this song is good at one at one point in time, and then months pass, and you're you're working the same thing. You know, you've got different parts. You when you lose perspective on something, you're really, you know, playing with fire because you can't. Mm -hmm. Once you lose perspective, it's like it's really really hard to bounce back. Of course. So then, how do you know when you're done a mix or a project that you're working on? A lot of like if I'm mixing something, I think, you know, I'll get it to a, a spot where I'm like, this is sounding really great. I think a being against the 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 reference mix is also huge. Um, and getting it to a point where it's like, oh, this feels great. And, um, you know, I just feel good about it. I'll send it to the client. And then, you know, I, I would sometimes it's like, yeah, it's done. And I'm like, OK, great. Um, other times, like, you know, let's just do this, do that, do that. And there is always a back and forth, you know, nine times out of ten. And I, you know, invite that um, process, but um, I think you know it's a, it's a collaboration. You know, if they're happy, you know, you you got to make sure that that client's happy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there is like a, a pushback if something is like objectively, you know, what this is better. Um, you you should voice that, but you know, it's not done until the the client ultimately says it's done. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like you have a like a do you have a, a well-defined workflow or process that you typically follow with the mix to like kind of know, okay, I've kind of done all my steps that I should have done. This should be a fun, like this, this mix should be done. Yeah. I mean, I, I within reason, I, I've got, you know, I don't have a template like a lot of people do where it's like the same effects. I, I basically have a template of like, these are my hotkeys. These are how I color code everything. It's very much a utility, um, how I, I set up my template and, and routing and busing and um, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I've got like a, 
a way I do things, certainly. And I also, I use a lot of the same plugins, you know, but, you know, depending on the song and um, what it calls for, you know, every, it's not like I, I just, there are presets in like effects that I'll use very frequently that I've kind of just like, this is my delay that, you know, really makes something sound lush that I'll use a lot, but um, there's never a set and forget. You know, I think once you start doing that, then you, you know, can start to lose perspective. For sure. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, definitely like, yeah, having those kind of utility templates that you talked about there, like those are good to have. Like they, they get you up and running quickly. And, you know, I think that helps you keep some of your perspective when, you know, you got something that lets you work fast as opposed to like starting from scratch every time. Like, you know, that, that's part of Absolutely. that process too of like having your objectivity is like if you're, if you're spending hours just building a session, you've you're kind of jaded by the end of that, by the time you're ready to start mixing, right? And then your, your objectivity's gone, right? Yeah. That's a good point. I, I really do, like, I think I do my best work before noon, and, like, I wake up early. I, I try and work really quick, because once you start doing stuff that's, like, tedious or, you know, maybe not as fun, like, tuning vocals. Like, sometimes tuning vocals is great. You get in the zone, whatever. But um, I really try to work quick to keep that, like, fresh like excited about the song just to like, you know, it's a push and pull, you know, you want to feel the song, you know, and you want to be really apparent to how it's making you feel as you make changes to it. So I find later in the day, I really have to like take a break. Usually I take a break. Like after I pick up my daughter, you know, I'll, I'll probably be in the house for probably, I don't know, four or five hours. And then I come back and then it's like, okay, I'm good to go again, you know, but, um, Come like three o'clock. It's like I just need to like peace out for a little bit, just to yeah. like one rest my ears. I'm I'm constantly resting my ears, but I think um really like stepping out and like just like just resetting your your mind um is really helpful. Just to have the same coming into it with fre- a fresh perspective. Yeah, I think that's really important to like schedule those kind of like ear breaks and you know just that that does help keep you fresh because yeah if you work on audio all day like as much as we all say like we love music it's like yeah we love music but when you're trying to be critical about it you have to have fresh ears and you, you can't uh you can't have that like tired feeling at all you know 100 100 percent. yeah um awesome i'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about some projects that you've worked on um and one that i'm very curious to know about is i know you worked on the taylor's version of taylor swift's red album and yeah. um from my understanding, the goal of working on that, or the goal of that record was to have her re-record all of her old recordings and kind of get them to sound very similar to the originals. Um, and I'd imagine that that was quite a challenge working on that record. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process and what that was like? Yeah, it was interesting. I remember seeing it like come up on the calendar, and um, I was un- I was so like, "How's this going to work?" You know, is Taylor coming to the studio again? Cause that was like a wild experience. Um, super sweet the first time around, you know? Um, but it was very much like it was fun in a way because it was mostly just me and Jackknife going back into the original session. I, th- I don't even know if we had the original session, to be honest with you. We had the stems for sure. And just kind of reverse engineering these sounds. And um, there were instances where we thought this is actually better that said, you know, the whole goal was to remake the song, the same spirit, same everything. Um, so in that instance, I, I replayed the drums, which is pretty cool to be able to say I was playing drums on a Taylor Swift song. But, um, you know, replaying all the parts and um, Taylor, she sent the vocals in. Um, so she didn't come to the studio. Um, what else? I think we had a different mixer do it. and. Um, it was it was tough work, but um, it was fun. It was really fun. And the uh, the first time we did the song, I think it was it was just so quick. Um, she came in for a day because you did the original. Yeah. Okay. So we did the original and the reissue, and I think um, that I think that was the case for most of those. She wanted to get the same people involved. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, the, the the original recording was like she was here for day literally one day a few hours um with gary lightbody from snow patrol and like just pumped out this amazing song and um you know we we worked on it for a few weeks after that 
Um, but that was it. And I think that's one of those things, you know, it was just so quick and like fresh and it felt good. That's very cool. I don't know how many songs she wrote for that record, but um, it's just, just goes to show it's like, you got something good, just roll it, roll with it. And like, yeah, don't, don't work it too much or, you know, it's going to lose something. That's awesome. Yeah. I was, I was very curious about like the, the Taylor's version of the record because to, to recreate a lot of those sounds, I imagine would be quite the challenge. Like I figured that, and I've been trying to, I've been trying to look into it. I haven't found any information about this online, like with any of the, the Taylor's versions, like, you know, I was curious if people were just simply referring to like old session notes and trying to like use the exact same gear and same settings or that kind of thing, or if it really was just like starting fresh, but chasing a sound. You know, I think it was, it was certainly starting for, you know, we had the files so we could AB against like, you know, sonically what we were shooting for. It wasn't like, we, there was a lot of like, okay, the stereo mix is different. Um, but, um, you know, it was like, as you would seem of, okay, here's the drum sound. We got to get that close to it. And, you know, ultimately you're, you know, from my perspective, it was like redoing the song with the same spirit. Stuff is going to be different. You, mm-hmm. you cannot, you can't replicate it exactly. Yeah. Even if you had the same gear, it's just going to be different. Um, but yeah, it's just reverse engineering from the ground up for the most part. And, yeah. um, you know, gear, we, we would probably like, you know, if we got close to the tone and it wasn't right, maybe try a few different guitars, but, um, it wasn't like, okay, we had to use this mic pre, we had to use these mics. We had to use so-and-so it was very much like, you know, listening to it, what amp should we use? What do you think this was? And then, you know, going from there. And I think that that just comes with, you know, a lot of experience and knowing the studio really well, you know, working out of Jackknife's place. Um, we're just like, yeah, that was probably the AC30 or what have you. You know, a lot of times it's like, that was probably DI, you know, and then through, we've got this amazing... Um, Let's show it here and do a plug for this guy because it's just like this amazing piece of equipment. But it's called the Big Trees, and I can't remember if we use this, but this is like this pedal is essentially an amp. Anyway, um, it's got a DI or it's got a line out. Anyway, we use that like just straight DI into a, a mic pre or whatever, and um, a lot of times that is like such a unique tone, and um, we'll go that route. But um, yeah, I mean. It's there was no um, secret to how we to made remade the songs. It was just like let's listen to the parts and um, try and get close to it. And that's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Because I, you know, one thing I often hear a lot of people talk about too is like you know we all have this expectation of like our records and what good sounds like, you know. And so we're often basing what good sounds like based on our our musical tastes and and other albums that we love and that kind of stuff. So very frequently, like I'll find a lot of engineers that are like, Oh, I really want the sound of this record or that record. And it's like, that's their standard. So they'll go chasing these sounds, but it's like, kind of like to, to your point earlier, it's like, you can have the same, same singer, same band, same equipment, and it's, it's going to sound different on different days. So it's like, it's, it's an, it's a near impossible task to chase the sound, but yet, a lot of us still try to achieve those sounds. We, we listen to records as inspiration. So um, I, I was kind of curious to like, know what goes through your mind when it comes to like reverse engineering sounds that you hear? Like, how do, how do you go pro- approaching that? Maybe that's a, a very broad question, but. No, I'd say I think it's a good question because I, I always think, you know, if you sound, if you're, if you're shooting for sounding like somebody um, or, you know, inspired by somebody, it's like, Use Bon Iver. He's such a unique sound. And like you can, if you listen to five seconds of a Bon Iver song, it's like, you know, that's him. But if you are using him as inspiration, but you just sound exactly like him, it's just, there's no point. Like it's, <clears throat> it's almost boring. Or it, to me, it's like, I wouldn't say offensive, but like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, it's like, he's such a, an inspiration to me as well. But it's like, you listen to that and are inspired to create something fresh and new and like by, and the journey to (laughs) this is going to get really like deep, I guess the journey to like recreate something in my perspective is how you kind of find what you like. You're kind of getting those moments, the, the character that you like, but also imparting your own 
character into something that somebody else will hopefully be inspired by. There's no, um, I think that's the beauty of trying to copy somebody. It's like through the process, you will find your own unique identity and character in, in a song or, you know, the sonics of it. Um, I guess to answer your question, it's like being, being involved in making records for such a long time. It's like, I know how to achieve the similar sound, but it's like, I guess it's more than the sonics and it's, it's a lot of the feeling that you're getting from what you're trying to achieve. And like a lot of times it's like, listen to this reference and it'll be like a drum sound or whatever. And it's like super tight, super dead. Um, and then you, you do that and it's like, okay, well this isn't really fitting with our song, Mm -hmm. but let's just adjust it to, to match our character, the character of this song. So it's like, you have this starting point. Um, and you can match it, you can get it. Um, but maybe that's not what the song calls for. So you use that as inspiration and then adjust it accordingly. And then it's something new at that point. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Cause another thing I see a lot of people struggle with is this idea of they'll listen to a reference track of a song that they love. And typically it's a song that they love cause they've heard it for like a decade or whatever, you know, it's like, it's kind of nostalgic. And because of that, they love that song, but then if they chase those sounds, it wouldn't sound like something modern. So it's like this this balance of like, you know, sometimes chasing that old nostalgic sound versus this modern expectation of what music should sound like. And there's there's a fine line there as, uh, in terms of like, you know, yeah, how how far do you want to go with chasing a sound versus, you know, Certainly. adapting, right? There's some really terrible sounding records that are amazing records, you know? I think um, the Ramones is probably a great example. Like, mm-hmm. There's such a sonic character to them, but by today's standards, it sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, you know, that what, so it's like, you, that's a great example of like, you know, pristine sonics doesn't make a song good, you know? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's like, I, I even think about like a lot of the, uh, like the old soul music. Like I love like a lot of the Motown stuff, but those recordings, they sound right. horrible. <laughs> but, and then right. like, it's like if you had like Usher these days trying to sound like Motown back in the day, you'd be like, what's this like basement recording that he did, you know? <laughs> it sounds <laughs> right, so right. weird, right? <laughs> no, it's a really good point. And, and it's funny too, we're, we're trying to, you know, I, I do this a lot too, is trying to chase a lot of those sounds, but it's like, um, in chasing it, you you get a whole new sound, but there's no going back to that time and recording the tape and this, you know, dingy studio with the old reverb or, or a room that's like reamped or something. Um, so all you can do is try your best and hopefully like get something that excites you the same way or in a new way, you know, that's all you can hope for. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, an- another artist that you worked with that I'd love to ask about is, uh, too. So you got to work with them as an engineer and as a mixing assistant. Um, you know, when working with a band like that, who has such a iconic classic sound, what's what's the process of working with them like in order to like try to honor and preserve that sound? Like, did it was it the same sort of idea as like kind of with this Taylor record where you're kind of just still trying to chase some of the that, that classic sound, or was it just like let's just roll with this and and embrace the new sound that they've got or, or something current? That's a, that's a good question. I think with like a band like that, you know, we were trying to make a, a record that was fresh and exciting um and they are an artist that will sound like you too regardless of what you think they should sound like or want this song to sound like or the sonic character like the second the edge picks up a guitar like that's the edge playing the guitar which is pretty amazing because you know a lot of people chase his sound is you know dotted eighth note sound but it's not going to sound like the edge playing unless it's the edge playing. And that is, it was pretty insane to be in the studio with him playing. Cause, um, it's just so iconic. Um, and they're, they're just insanely talented, passionate, um, people as well. It was, um, that was a really, um, hard record to make only because it's hard to, um, match the same passion that they have in all honesty. Um, How so? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? Just like, you know, they um, just, they want the, you know, they are you two, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world. So they have high expectations as do we for ourselves when making something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's just like, 
I don't know. I think it's managing your um, the pressure you feel to make something sound worthy of being a U2 song. Um, and that, you know, they're just always in the studio, new ideas all the time. And um, that's a hard, it was a hard process because I, every idea that they had was a good idea. So um, luckily for me, I was, I was the engineer and it wasn't my job to say this is better. You know, I was just there kind of like experiencing it at all. Um, it's just, you know, there were so many people working on that record as well. And everyone had good ideas. Um, and with someone like you too, they entertain every idea. And, you know, their process is through entertaining every single idea, the best one should come out on top. And, um, you know, whether that works, um, it's hard to say. It's just, it's, it's hard to keep perspective. And, um, you know, that's ultimately for them to decide, you know, as, as the artist. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that would be a challenge because yeah, like they, if every idea is a good idea, you're like, Oh, we should, we should record this, you know, but, but yeah, I guess, you know, that's, uh, that's why they hire the producer to, to make that call. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, yeah, it's, it was, it was certainly such a, a, a huge learning experience for me, but, um, challenging as well yeah yeah and i also imagine too like kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with like the indie band versus like you know a band like you too like those those are giant extremes right but like a band like you too they're they're so well oiled and i'm sure they they probably come along with their texts and everything and it's just like you know they're gonna sound like you too because they've they've got that history they've got the people right there's that team there so um, that's pretty amazing there's a um Edge has uh, his guitar tech. His name's Dallas. He's pretty uh, legendary. He's worked with so many legends. Anyway, any sound from like the past, I don't know, probably decade or so, you you say a, a day or a date and a time, Dallas will probably have the signal chain from beginning <laughs> to end so you can pull up that sound and and recreate it. It's pretty amazing. Like when you say like a date or time, do you mean like like a reference to like some other artist or like no? Like you say there? January of two thousand and ten at four o'clock, the sound. What was it? And you'll be like, <laughs> oh, give me a sec. And you'll like pull up a picture of the pedals and like what mics were being used and what amp. It's ridiculous. Wow. So like they like all all you're talking about like their history though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not like anybody. It's yeah. Like, I was gonna say, is he he's that good at reverse something. engineering sounds? <laughs> <laughs> Bring him on the Taylor record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But I guess you know, at that level, you you have to work with the best of the best, and like those people are clearly documenting everything because you know there's so many gear aficionados and whatnot that are you know studying all of that equipment, and, right. and people want to know, right. right? So like somebody's got to document it and do something with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes he's like, <laughs> it's, um, you know, sometimes it'll be like, we need to find this pedal and he just can't find the pedal. So it's like this man, this, this crazy goose chase to try and find this pedal that is out of it. You know, they don't make it anymore. And, you know, maybe there's one on reverb or something. Um, it's just interesting to to see <laughs> the whole process and they, they certainly do have the best of the best. So that was like really cool to just like, you know, no expense spared. Um, the time, there's no real deadline. The deadline is the song has to be done. Once yeah. the song's done, then the record's done. You know, a lot of times it's like we have three months to do this record. Um, and if you don't do it in that time, we're out of money type mm-hmm. thing. But, um, you know, their goal is to make the best thing that they can make. And, um, that's it. Which yeah. Is, you know, pretty cool. Yeah. And I imagine too that like, yeah, when you have an artist like that who every like like you said, like every idea is a good idea. Their tones are probably amazing to start with. Um, you know, it, it's it's possibly ar- arguable that like the mixes are fast for a project like that because everything sounds good. Or maybe maybe because there's that pressure there, they, they take longer. So, um, what was your experience there? That you know, for, I think the whole record. Who mixed it? The guy, um, Electric Lady, um, who also did Adele. Blanking on his name you know, A-list mixer. But he was also mixing in in real time as we were, like, working on it. So, like, if we finished, you know, if, like, at the end of the day, um, send him the files, 
still mix it so they have something to listen to come the morning so it's pretty intense in that regard where it's like you know and to their points like they get they have the luxury of being able to listen to something that sounds absolutely amazing you know when they wake up the next morning to be like well does this work how does this make me feel (laughs) you know um so that's how that worked and and he had an assistant who was helping him um mix as well um i can find his name really quick um elmhurst tom elmhurst yeah that's cool and and that's and that's actually very impressive like to have that kind of uh like conveyor belt sort of system of you know record it and then the next day is mixed by a professional engineer that's that's uh essentially that, i guess you only you only get that at that level of musician <laughs> certainly they had electric lady booked out for like a few months straight which was um pretty cool um you know they put you up in a nice hotel in new york the whole you know it feels very like working with rock stars you know so yeah. that was pretty cool yeah that's amazing i love it man um Right on. Well, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but one question that I always love to ask people at, towards the end of the episodes is, in your opinion, especially now that you're doing this more, you're, you're mixing more, your focus is way more on mixing these days. In your opinion, what ultimately makes a great mix? I think it's got to a good mix. It's it's a it's hard to answer that question without hearing the the rough mix. But I think a good okay. mix should only. Um, should sort of be invisible. You know, it's like you want the song to be the best version of itself possible. And if I'm focusing on how good the sonics are, then that's probably distracting from the song. Um, There's certainly amazing songs that are mixed amazingly well and like that I study and love to listen to. Um... But if a song just sounds really freaking good, um, it doesn't make the song good, if that makes sense. My my whole um, goal with mixing is to really um, just elevate the song as much as I possibly can. If I and that sometimes means making things sound worse in in specific situations. Um, But if that's what the song calls for, that's what the song calls for. Um, So a good mix is a mix that's elevating the song to the to its highest potential. And, you know, it's kind of a, maybe that's a cop-out answer, but that's that's how I, um, you know, go into each project is, is how I can make this um, feel more exciting. And, and many times that does mean sonically, it's clearer, it's crisper, it's brighter. All these, all these words that people, you know, use in mixing, warmer, whatever. Um, a lot of times it is all those things. Um, but there are also instances where that guitar is too bright. Let's let's muddy it up a little bit. Let mm-hmm. those vocals are way too clean. They sound too pretty. Let's um, throw a distressor on there and cut off some of the highs so they are a little blurry. Um, it's really just trying to like, you know, elevate the song, squeeze as much character out of that recording as possible. And sometimes that also means like breathing character into it if a song is, you know, lacking that. So. For sure. It's a very broad spectrum, but um, that's my answer. No, that's great. But I, but I love how you mentioned, like, sometimes it's making a sound worse, you know, or whatever whatever it takes to elevate that. And uh, I think that that circles back to what we were talking about earlier about that idea of perfect is boring. You know, if it, sometimes, yeah. sometimes you have to, uh, yeah, you got to make some, you got to mess with something just to get it to sound cooler and make it more exciting. So um, I think that's a great spot to wrap up. Um, if people want to learn more about you or follow you online or maybe even work with you, what's the best way for, for them to do that? Yeah, uh, I've got a website, mathbishop, M-A-T-H, bishop.com. Um, I'm also on Sound Better. Shout out to Sound Better. Um, and, you know, Math Bishop is basically where you can find me on on most platforms. Apart from Sound Better, I'm, I'm Mount, Matt Bishop on there. But um, I'm not, I don't have a strong, you know, if you, if you follow me on Instagram, it's probably just records I've worked on. Um, so it's, I mean, follow me, do it. But uh, <laughs> you're not going to see me like baking a cake or like, playing with my daughter or anything it's mostly yeah. just work stuff right on man <laughs> <laughs> well Matt, thank you for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it and it, yeah it was great to get some insight into some, some of the projects you're working on and some of your philosophies on all the stuff and uh I, i'm sure that there's a lot of great stuff people are going to take from this episode so thank you oh, i hope so well uh, thanks for having me mike it's a pleasure to meet you right on same here 
So that was my interview with Matt Bishop, and I really enjoyed that episode. I loved learning about working with artists like Taylor Swift and U2 and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on when you're working with massive artists. I thought that was so crazy that U2 basically had that like conveyor belt system where they can go into a studio and record and then that same night, some A-list mixer mixes their song, probably makes it sound incredible right off that first mix. And then the next day it's done. Like that is such a wild concept to me. And it kind of goes to show like what's possible when you have a bigger budget and you can afford to have the machine in place there, right? So definitely really interesting to learn about that. And I also thought it was really cool to learn about that Taylor Swift record and the process of chasing those sounds and and going through that whole thing over and over again, um, very fascinating. I, you know, I, like I said a couple times in this episode, I know a lot of people listen to music and they want the same sounds as another artist, and so they'll chase these sounds. And there's a bit of a process to that. So I thought it was fun to get into that process with Matt in this episode. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I hope that you found it informative. I hope that you found it helpful. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for additional help with your mixes and your recordings, and you're trying to get your songs to sound at a pro level, but you can't seem to figure out what's going on, why, no matter how many YouTube videos you watch, you can't get the sound that you're after. Well, if you're looking for one-on-one support throughout that process to help you get results that sound just as good as your favorite recordings, then definitely make sure to check out my coaching program. It's called Amplitude. And in that program, I work one-on-one with you, giving you all the resources you need to help you create great sounding recordings, great edits, great mixes, so that ultimately you can get your music sounding at the level that you expect it to. If you're interested in learning more, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude. And all the details are there. You can sign up for a demo and I'd love to show you around. I'd love to show you what the program looks like behind the scenes and learn more about how I can help you with your music. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude for that. And with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.